0: Good morning. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that I need the Lord more in this hour than I do any other hour, but I need Him now. You need Him now. I need Him to preach. You need Him to comprehend and to apply the, the truth. I prayed the Lord would keep me humble. Around the beginning of 2015, God did a mighty work here in La Crete. Call it a revival or an awakening among the younger people, but it was altogether a work of God that I will never forget. I know I called myself a Christian at the time, but I would look back and say that I was a lukewarm one at best. I saw two of my brothers get saved at this time, and it lit a fire in me as well to live for Christ and to make him known to others. There were many young people coming to know Christ as Lord of their life, and the grace of God was abounding. I, it was a, a special time. I think there are probably many, or for sure some, seated here today that would bear witness. But something that I noticed as the years went on, as... Uh, as we all, we grew, but there was often a struggle with assurance, the assurance of salvation. Many had been brought up in homes where, where uh, salvation was more of a wish. Depending on how good we were, we would maybe make it to heaven, maybe make it to hell. One of the books that was a treasure at this time was the Epistle of First John. Going through this epistle alone or with other brothers helped us to see that, yes, indeed, God had done a work. He had done a marvelous work. He had changed our hearts. He had changed our desires. We no longer loved the world, though we fought every day. We, the flesh was still with us. We it was clear to see, but we had a love for Christ. We had a love for other believers, and we longed for fellowship. This epistle of 1 John helped us to see that we were passing the tests that God had put forth in his word, and that we were indeed children born of God. And so as I talked to Mike on what to preach on, I thought it would be profitable to start going through the epistle of 1 John. So that's what I'll do. The, the plan is, I think, as, as I preach every four months, and then Will, and then Rob, Mike preaches for a month, and then one of us preaches, so I'll probably be in this book for a long time, but for me, it, it, for a Christian, it's a joy to go through this epistle. There are many tests put forth, and as the believer looks at them, he realizes that, yes, indeed, God has done a marvelous work. This epistle is the first of three small epistles that the Apostle John wrote as an old man while spending some of his last years in Ephesus. It is written from a pastoral perspective, and it has assured many a weak and trembling believer who examines his life by the tests and the exhortations of 1 John and sees that his life indeed has been changed by the gospel. It helps true believers to see that they have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, this epistle has also pierced through the false assurance of many professing believers who are still living like the devil and living for the world as though Christ were the furthest thing from their mind. They will often, they might go through this epistle and they might realize where they stand, and by the power of God's word, they turn from that and they trust in Him. And so that is the purpose of this epistle. Three times John tells his readers, I am writing to you so that. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, so that our joy may be made complete. In 2 1, he says, so that you may not sin. And then in 5.13 is a verse that we are all familiar with. I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that seems to be the main purpose of this book, that his readers will have an assurance of eternal life. John knows that if his readers are true believers, they will pass the tests he puts forth, and they will be more assured of their salvation. But it will also lead to holy living, as John says in 2.1. But even there, John assures them that if they do sin, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We also need to remember that that although this epistle does expose the person who says he is a Christian, yet lives like the devil, it was not written for them. It was written to assure the believers in the churches in and around Ephesus, and it applies to us today. But in doing that, it exposes the unbeliever in Chapter two nineteen, John says, They went out from us. They are those who still seem to profess Christ, but he is a different Christ altogether, as we will see. So we do see that John wants his readers to have joy, to live godly lives, and to have an assurance that they are indeed children of God, but this should cause us to ask a question, why? Why, John, are you concerned about these churches? Are they lacking in these things? John seems to be writing as a pastor with pastoral intent. We see that he was indeed concerned for these churches he was writing to. And it should cause us to ask what is happening in and around Ephesus at this time that he is writing. And it leads us to an examination of the historical context of this letter. It was written in late 80 to early 90 AD to the churches in and around Ephesus. At the time of writing, the Christian church would have been approximately 55 to 60 years old. And as always, even as we see today, it was under attack from the beginning. But at the turn of the first century AD, many new and strange heresies were beginning to creep into the church, and many were falling for them. Remember, John was in Ephesus, which was filled with Greek thought and knowledge was esteemed extremely high. Just to help us to understand this this epistle better and why John is writing what he is. We'll look at a few of the heresies that were creeping forth. This is just an introduction to this, to this book. I'll later just be going through the first couple of verses, the introduction. There was a heresy of Gnosticism, which is uh, the church father Irenaeus writes of this. It, it was a form of Gnosticism put forth by a, a heretic named Serinthus. He taught that Jesus was a mere man, that he was not born of a virgin but yet that he was more righteous and more good than most men. He himself was not the Christ, but the Spirit of Christ descended on him at his baptism and then departed before he died. And so he died simply as just, just a man, is what this heretic was teaching. So we see here a different Christ than John proclaimed. These Gnostics thought that man is basically good in his spirit, but that all physical matter is bad and therefore can be used for any sin imaginable. Which led to the what they call antinomianism, where we can sin that grace may abound. Although we cannot confirm this was the heresy that John was addressing the churches, we do see hints of it throughout John's epistle. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, and in 2, 26 to 27, John says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And in 26 to 27 says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we see that there were teachers coming in trying to say, you need this or you need that, you need more knowledge. And John says, no, look back at what you believed at the beginning and believe that. John is writing about the false teachers that are trying to deceive the true believers. He makes it clear that when they were saved, the anointing that they received from God abides in them. They do not have need for anyone else to teach them something different. From this it seems that many were teaching a special knowledge, which is what Gnosticism is. But John says, no, what you received at the beginning, believe that. That is what is true. And again, that led to antinomianism, which in 1 John chapter 1, 6, John says, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And later in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is what the Gnostics would teach, even while professing Jesus. But John writes that no one who is truly born again makes a practice of sinning, because God's seed is in him, and he cannot keep on sinning habitually. It does not mean the Christian does not sin. It means he does not wake up in the morning planning to swim in his sin all day and still profess Christ to be Lord. And then there was the heresy of docetism. There is a church father, Ignatius, who writes of these heretics that came into the church, and this was again right around the end of the first century, that Christ only appeared to be fully man in the flesh, but that he was actually only a spirit. He did not truly suffer in the flesh as fully God and fully man, but it is only what he appeared to be. Again, we cannot confirm that these are the people that John has in mind, but we do see many hints of this false teaching throughout his epistle. In the first verse of this epistle, in one one, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Immediately, John makes it clear that we saw him. We not only saw him, we heard him and we touched him. <clears throat> You cannot touch a spirit with your hands. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So we see that they were there. These people were were there and they were trying to sway these believers. This would be one of the clearest verses that John has this ascetic view in mind as he writes. These ones that had left the church are denying that Christ was a physical being and John says they are then children of the Antichrist. We see that doctrine was extremely important to the Apostle John. Many of these people were professing Christ, they were professing a Jesus, but he was altogether a different Christ and therefore no Christ at all. And we face the same thing in our day. We must remember that doctrine, that the doctrine of Christ and his gospel is extremely important. As Christians, we have no right to say that doctrine does not matter. Even the false teachers don't say that doctrine does not matter. It is extremely important to them. Look at the Jehovah's Witnesses. Doctrine matters to them. They say that Jesus Christ is not truly God, and they will die on that hill. It is a false and a twisted doctrine, but it matters to them. And I believe it is because doctrine matters to the devil as well. Even when we look at the world around us, it seems that Satan has no problem with Jesus being professed and even preached as long as it is not the same Christ that was crucified for our sins and raised up from the dead. In Mark 13:21 to 23, Mark writes, and if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. It is clear from this passage that just because someone professes or confesses Christ, it does not mean that we immediately count them a brother or sister. That is why in, John, in 1 John 4.1, John tells us to test every spirit to see whether they are from God. If they have a different Christ, they are worshipping a different God does not John say in 2.23 again that whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father either? And from all of this, we see why the Apostle John was concerned. We remember he was approximately, I think, probably 85 to 90 years old at the time this epistle was written. He was an old man. He wanted these churches to realize that there is only one Christ who can save. He is the true and living word of life in whom they can be wonderfully assured that they are indeed children of God. And so he writes them a letter. He shows them how a true Christian lives, knowing that when the true believers in the church will test themselves by this standard, they will have great assurance that they have been born of God. We will now take a look at the first four verses of this epistle in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I divided this passage into two points. The first point, we will look at this word of life that John points to is the basis of fellowship with the Father. Then we will look at his reason for pointing us to that word of life and see how and why we can enjoy fellowship with God and with other believers. So I'll read the text, 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. that which was from the beginning. This introduction reminds us of another letter that John wrote, the Gospel of John, where he opens, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is writing here concerning the Word of life. Although he does have the Lord in mind who was there from the beginning, there is something else we need to see here. In 1 John 2, 7 helps with this. John says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So here John refers to the beginning as the beginning of when they first came to know Christ, when the, the beginning of their, when they were saved. See, these believers in the churches were being swarmed with new teaching and new knowledge. But John seems to actually be pointing to the gospel message as the word that they heard at the beginning. Yes, Christ has been there from eternity past, but the beginning that John is pointing to here is the beginning of when they first became believers. The gospel that you heard at first, that Christ that you trusted in at first, that word which you heard at the beginning, believe that. Trust in that. Trust in Christ. And before we look at the middle of verse 1, look at the end of it. Concerning the word of life. The thought that came to me when I studied this was, Jesus Christ is the word of life. The word of life is Jesus Christ. This word of life that John is writing of is both the message of Christ and the person of Christ. The right message needs to be preached about the right Jesus Christ, the one and only one who can save. In one one which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And the way John is referring to here is him and the other apostles. They were the ones closest to the Lord. In fact, it was a requirement for the apostles to have been with Christ during his his ministry in order to be named an apostle. We see in the book of Acts, chapter 1, 21-22, Luke writes, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The Apostle John was a disciple of John the Baptist before he followed Jesus. In John 1.37, John the Baptist sees Jesus and proclaims him as the Lamb of God. John hears this and follows the Lord. It sounds so simple, but it is probable that even before he followed Christ, he had already seen him do many miracles. He had heard him teach, and he knew that this was no ordinary man. And so he followed him. It is believed he was one of the youngest disciples, perhaps only 16 to 17 years old at the time. John says he heard the word of life. He saw with his own eyes the word of life. He looked upon or he beheld this word of life. He touched this word of life. John was there for all of it. We can almost see him as an old man, perhaps going back 60 to 70 years and recalling this wonderful Christ whom he was able to walk with. While he was fulfilling the ministry for which he came. John heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount, he would have heard all the parables laid out and explained, and it changed John. And from what we see in Scripture, John needed to be changed. Jesus gave him and his brother James the name Sons of Thunder. In Luke nine, forty six to fifty six, we see three instances where it seems John and his brother James are still in need of some work. First, the disciples are arguing which one of them is the greatest. Then John tries to stop someone from ministering, although Jesus is approving of what the man is doing. But then they even go so far as trying to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village because they would not receive Christ into their midst. For this, Jesus rebukes them sharply. It seems that John was not always the one to think things through. Yet in his gospel, John refers to himself as who? The disciple whom Jesus loved. It was not just that he loved Christ, but he knew that Christ loved him as well. All that John heard and saw and beheld and touched drove him to love the Lord more and more. He was one of the three that Jesus took the most time with. He was there with James and with Peter when Jesus showed them his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when John heard the voice from on high, he with Peter and James fell on his face and worshipped. John was there during Jesus' ministry as he saw what Isaiah describes as the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. But he was also there during the darkest moments of all of it, even at the end as this same Jesus Christ laid down his life so that the wrath of God might be turned away from those he loved. We see that the incarnation of Jesus was deathly serious to John. He saw the Savior, bloody and bruised, hanging on that cross. It was no spirit. It was Jesus Christ, truly a man, yet truly God, hanging there in the flesh. That is why he stresses that this word of life was manifested to them. They could see him, they could hear him, and they could touch him. Imagine seeing someone you love being tortured and murdered right before your eyes. You would never forget it. You would never forget the last words that that man said to you before he died. And John recalls in his gospel, in chapter 19, 26 to 27, as Jesus looks directly at him and charges him with taking care of his mother after his death. What an impact that must have left on him. The Lord of glory crucified right before his eyes, still concerned about the well-being of his mother. And John did what Jesus asked of him. He took Mary to his own home, and he saw that she was cared for. We see in verse 2, that which we have seen and heard, we also, that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life that was made manifest to us. So John writes, With the heart for the truth and a zeal to know that the people in his churches are believing this truth, he writes. And he proclaims. He proclaims because he knows, as we will see in the next point, that it is the belief of this truth that is what leads to true fellowship with God. Look at how John ends both his written gospel and this epistle. In John twenty-one twenty-four, we see this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so John is sure to proclaim this truth of the eternal life that he had seen. He does not say, I am simply telling you of this word of life, but he says, we testify to it. We proclaim it to you. And again, testify, here is the Greek word martyros, from which we get the English word martyr, one who testifies. This is not a message that is to be received lightly. To be simply shrugged off is something interesting. For John, the message carries much weight, and he proclaims it. It is a critical message that needs to be taken seriously. And I think we all need to also remember that John is writing to Christians. He does have confidence concerning their faith. He calls them little children, over and over in the letter, and not in a condescending way, but in a way that helps us to see the love that he has for them. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. But we also need to remember that it was the Holy Spirit who penned this letter through the hands of John. And John is proclaiming a message here that God wants the people in his day to hear. But the message carries over to our day, and as we read this, As we hear this, we must remember that the Lord desires us to apply it to our own lives as well. I'm thankful for God's mercy in putting this letter into Scripture. It is gracious of Him to give us an epistle where we can look at and to see where we stand as believers. And we now have His Word. Through the inspired writing, we too can see... Though not with our eyes like John did. We hear, though not, we do not hear the Savior himself teach and preach like John did. But what did Jesus say to Thomas? Blessed are those that have not seen and yet believe. And what are we to believe? We are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ of the Scriptures. We are to completely cast ourselves on Him to shield us from the wrath of God. We are to believe the message of this wonderful word of life. It is the gospel that has been proclaimed to us. First by the apostles as they wrote down the message, then by faithful men who carry this wonderful message forward. That'll bring us to our second point, an invitation to true fellowship. Fellowship with God. As In verse 3 we see, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son Jesus Christ this first now leads us to the first purpose of this passage we are now able to see what John's concern is and why he believes this word needs to be proclaimed he wants his readers to have fellowship with them and with them is the apostles and those who hold to their teaching with them the christians and ultimately with God the father through Christ the Son. Although in this verse, John first mentions fellowship with them and then fellowship with God, I want to look at the fellowship with God first. This fellowship with the Father is only there because, because we trust in His Son for our salvation. But again, this fellowship then leads to a true fellowship with other believers. But a question might come up here. John repeatedly refers to his readers in a manner that shows us that they are believers, Why then do they need to be restored to fellowship, to true fellowship with God and with his people? I thought it profitable to look at what the word fellowship is and what John is actually meaning here. The Greek word is koinonia. It is interesting to note that in all of John's writings, he only uses this word four times. And they all occur in in these four verses from verses 3 to 7 in this chapter. In classical Greek, it meant the brotherly bond among human beings. Paul uses this word only as referring to faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians one nine, Paul writes, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The New Testament Dictionary of Theology says this word in John's context does not refer to a mystical fusion with Christ and God, but to fellowship and faith. Its basis is in the apostolic preaching of the historical Jesus Christ and walking in the light and in the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin. John is confident that his readers are saved, yet extremely concerned about what is being taught by these false teachers. So he proclaims to them in the first two verses the message of the person of Jesus Christ, and is saying, keep looking to him, the one who came in the flesh, and you will prove to be a child of God, and you will have fellowship with him and with us. The basis of fellowship with us is believing on this Jesus Christ who came in the flesh for us. Remember John is writing that his readers may have assurance. To lack assurance of one's salvation is, in a way, to lack true fellowship with God. In this same letter, in chapter 3, verse 19 to 24, which was always a precious passage to me when struggling through these things, when I was lacking assurance, John writes... By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Verse twenty: For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Again, there we see by this we know that he abides in us. And Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Can a Christian lose or lack true fellowship with God and still be a Christian? I would be careful here, but we know that there's nothing on heaven or earth that can separate a true believer from the love of Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans eight thirty-eight to 39. Nor is there anything that can pluck them from the Father's hand. But when a child of God begins to go his own way, turning away from what saved him in the first place, there will be a lack of true fellowship. But as we see in Hebrews, those that the Lord loves, he disciplines. And that Jesus comes for the sheep that strays. He will go after that straying sheep until fellowship is again restored. And I believe that is what he is doing here through the Apostle John. He uses this epistle to reassure the hearts of those believers who are struggling Imagine a man who has been saved and is growing in his faith and growing in grace and knowledge of Christ. Along comes someone who he does not know is a false teacher, and this man disciples him. Slowly he begins to point him to a different Christ. And the struggling believer then falls for this teaching for a short time, until a godly brother comes along and shows him from the scriptures the true Christ and the true gospel. Was the fellowship broken? We know from from Scripture that the relationship between the believer and God was not broken, but we could say that true fellowship was restored when the man realized his error and repented and again cast himself on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what John is referring to here. To help us understand this word, let's look a few verses further in verses 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we are Christians but we spend our lives walking in darkness, we are liars. And it seems that's what the heretics were doing at this time. The false teachers that were coming in were talking like Christians but living like the devil and it is interesting that the ones who are walking in the light in verse seven do not need to say anything about how godly they are or how much fellowship they have with God. It is their lives that are showing it. Not in the way of where we preach the gospel of just with our actions. We know that you, words must be used for the gospel message to go forth, but when we live godly lives, we will not need to convince people of our godliness with our words. Our lives will show it. We'll look at the next point, their fellowship with believers. And I put this point here because it is interesting that true fellowship with Jesus Christ leads to true fellowship with God's people. True fellowship with God's people is a result of true fellowship with Christ. So if we are lacking in assurance that we are saved, we will also be lacking in fellowship with God's people. It is interesting to me how this works. I remember as an unbeliever, when the topic of Jesus or the gospel came up, I would run. I would do all I could to get away from there. These people were strange, and I didn't really want anything to do with them. And yet, I remember when I was saved, these strange, weird people were the ones that I would just love. They were the ones that I would, would, would go to and, and just, uh, I guess, with everything, struggles and questions, and I loved talking to them and fellowshipping with them but is it not true that sometimes when we sin and we have not confessed it, our fellowship even our fellowship with other believers can be broken and is not what it should be or when we are dealing with someone who has fallen into sin perhaps John is feeling that as well when we look at verse 4 John writes we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete We see that John's purpose in this letter is indeed to help his readers find an assurance of eternal life through the word of life. John is saying that as their assurance grows, so does his joy. It is not a good thing for an unbeliever to be assured of his salvation. In fact, it is dangerous to try to give someone an assurance that they are saved. If in fact they are bearing no fruit And they are living for the world. But to see a brother or sister who lives a godly life, but is cast down by the devil or facing fears and fightings within, and without to see them again have that confidence that their sins are forgiven and that they are no longer children of wrath, but children of God, that is a beautiful thing. I think we can all say, just as John says, it gives us great joy to see that. Some manuscripts here say that our joy may be complete. Some say that your joy may be made complete. But I don't know if it really makes much of a difference. For if John's readers are restored to true fellowship with Christ, both of their joys will be made complete. And we see from John's writings that seeing people walking in truth indeed did give him much joy. In the book of Second John and Third John, which are both written by the same man, In 2 John, verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In 3 John, verses 3 to 4, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I think I mixed those two verses up there, but... (laughs) Brothers and sisters, even in our day, the person of Jesus Christ is attacked from all sides. I believe even here in our little town, there are many different versions of Jesus. Many of which cannot lead to fellowship with God. And I would exhort us and encourage us to keep our Bibles open and before us when we go out and profess and confess Christ to people. We must know him, this word of life. Many around here would preach a Christ that offers no assurance of eternal life. They say you cannot know what John tells us. We can know. We can be assured because our salvation has been secured by the one who turned God's wrath away from us, even though we deserved every bit of it. It begins and ends with God. I fear sometimes we get it wrong, even as believers who are convinced that we can know we have eternal life. I've heard it being presented in a way that is also not biblical. Someone will say, perhaps, even to someone on their deathbed, do you believe that we can know that we are going to heaven? They might even quote 1 John 5.13 and say, where, where in that scripture it says that we can know, and if the person acknowledges or agrees that yes, we can know, sometimes we will hinge our confidence that they have been saved on the fact that they say we can know. But it's wrong because our confidence does not lie in a doctrine of assurance. Our confidence lies in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that leads us to be assured of our salvation. It is not the knowing that saves us. It is Christ who saves us and who gives us the knowing that we are saved. Yes, Assurance is a real thing. God gives assurance to his children, but it is through an understanding of who Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. And that is why John is here in the first couple of verses of his epistle. He's pointing to that word from the beginning, the word of life, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through him that we have assurance. It's through knowing who he is and an understanding of what he accomplished on our behalf that we have Assurance. He is the eternal life that we must come to know. That is why John is first pointing his readers to Christ, showing us that it is all of him. In this this same way, we are to point people to him to be saved. Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we could not live. He then died a terrible death that we deserved. On the cross he cried out, It is finished. The debt was paid. He then rose from the dead three days later, claiming the power and the victory over death and showing forth that indeed his sacrifice was sufficient and our justification was secure. The wrath that we deserved had been satisfied. And as those who trust the Savior Jesus Christ, we can now come before his throne with confidence that he loves us, not because we are righteous on our own, but because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and we stand in his righteousness alone. He came that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. John writes, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath and anger of God. And on this word of life, this Christ, we rest. For those that have not yet turned from their sins and trusted in his blood, I would urge you to do it today. The testimony of John is sure that God gives eternal life. This life is in Christ. Whoever has the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not have the Son does not have life, but God's wrath remains on him. Turn away from evil and be cleansed of sin today. We have God's promise that in Christ we will have eternal life, but in the same way, we have his promise that those who reject the Son of God will perish in hell forever. That is what we deserved. But God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's live for him as we go from here this week. I'll close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, and I thank you that you have put this epistle First 1 John in there for us to give us an assurance as believers where we stand, Lord, help us to walk worthy of the gospel. Even this week, as we go from here, give us strength to do that by your power, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.